This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. Joining me today is Professor Laura Katz Olson, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Lehigh University, to discuss her recently published Johns Hopkins University Press book, Ethically Challenged, Private Equity Storms, the U- U.S. Healthcare. Professor Olson, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Professor Olson's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, Professor Olson's work describes how PE firms over the past 40 years have purchased an ever-increasing number of acute and post-acute providers, physician groups, dental practices, and a long list of healthcare ancillary services. And she also describes uh, what impact PE firms have and are having on the delivery and affordability of healthcare. So I will leave it at that very brief introduction. So let's get right into this, uh, Professor Olson. Um, in this instance, I'll ask this question. It's formula, I realize, but what prompted you to write this book? Well, I've been studying uh, healthcare and the aged now for nearly 50 years. Uh, I even wrote a book on Medicaid, of which one third goes for long-term care. And private equity started uh, cropping up periodically. Uh, when I tried to find out more about it, I couldn't. Uh, and that's because of the secrecy of the private equity industry. Um, when I try to find the differences between nonprofit long-term care, like hospice and home health uh, versus commercial companies, uh, I find that researchers don't even differentiate between private equity and other ownership. So I decided that uh, because of the secrecy, I was intrigued. So I invested money in a pitch book, uh, which costs $22,000 a year. They're the only place that has real data, Mm -hmm. uh, even though they're missing pieces. Uh, I did interviews with people who uh, sold their practices to private equity. And I even went to a few private equity conferences where there were like 300 people. And at every session, they were told nothing goes outside this room. So I knew I had to uh, tell this story. Okay, thank you. And I will say your book is is heavily noted. Um, so per your point about your research methods. And I, I appreciate the point. And it, it comes out in reading the book, and that is uh, long-term care, home health hospice is discussed throughout the volume. And we'll get to those um, post-acute, as they say, uh, silos in a moment. But So let's let's move on. I think it'd be worthwhile for those unfamiliar if you could give um, sort of an overview of uh, how uh, PE firms commonly operate. What's what's their uh, what's their formula? How do they approach? And of course, specific. You know, they work in, of course, all industries. But obviously, here we're most concerned about, although it's generic. You know, reference obviously to specifically how they work in healthcare. So, if you could provide an overview of how a PE uh, private equity firm operates? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, they have a playbook, and this playbook works for healthcare almost in the same way as anything else. They don't really care. Right. Um, uh, so it, it's not like they, well, they have 
differences in healthcare, but mostly it's um, uh, it's very, very complicated, but also very simple. And I would start by saying that uh, the major goal, if only goal, of private equity is outsized profits. Now, this is different from a company which needs to make profits. We're talking here about outsized profits. Mm-hmm. They, they have to beat the stock market or else uh, nobody would invest with them, um, the investors. So what they do is they raise a pool of capital from what they call limited partners. And these are usually uh, state and local governments, public pension funds. And each pool of capital is a fund that has a life cycle of about 10 to 12 years. Then they use that money to buy 10 to 15 businesses, which then become part of their uh, portfolio. Now, I'd like to add, unlike what you hear, the reality is they only buy flourishing companies. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a few that uh, specialize in distressed companies, but they only want flourishing companies. And that's because they buy these companies with very high debt. Uh, the average today is about uh, a little over 60% debt. And the private equity firm only puts in about 2% and their limited partners put in the rest. Then they make their money on fees. They have transaction fees, monitoring fees, management fees, consulting fees, advisory fees, servicing fees. Um, They also make money on dividend recaps, which they get by adding more debt onto the companies. In other words, they pull more money out through debt. Um, And then they have to pay off all this debt. And the way they do that is squeezing operations. Um, I kind of see it like uh, the so-called doctors of the 1800s, who use bloodletting as a cure. <laughs> right, right. Sometimes they use leeches, uh, an app name, by the way, for PE. And that weakened the patient or the patient died. Uh, there's just so many ways you can squeeze more revenue out of a company. Uh, and they can add supplementary services to augment revenue, but they need this revenue flow to pay off the debt. And they have four to five years in which to do this. And healthcare, it's usually more on the four-year level. And then they send it off to another private equity firm or um, make it public. Um, they also, in healthcare, increasingly, they buy additions to their basic platform and try to get either local, regional, or national monopolies. And, of course, this adds more debt. Mm-hmm. And therefore, when they get these monopolies, they can uh, charge higher and higher prices for the healthcare services. So basically, they only keep them for about four or five years and then they're gone, which I think is an important thing to remember when you're looking at private equity. Okay, thank you. And when you noted outsized profits at one at one point in the volume, uh, you note the brass ring is a is a twenty percent margin, and in fact, interestingly, I'll note if you read the MedPAC uh, March report 
Uh, it has chapters on skilled nursing, home health, and hospice. And MedPAC always notes uh, margins. And if you look for those three post-acute providers, uh, which have become increasingly, if not uh, largely dominated by the private uh, sector or privately held, um, they're all 20% or plus uh, per MedPAC relative to their profit margins uh, most recently. Um, well, health care is um, one of the uh, highest profit-making uh, niches that you have in this country. Right, particularly, of course, pharmaceuticals, correct? Oh, pharmaceuticals, yes, absolutely. Right. But uh, if you look at hospice, so if you look at home care, these are very profitable. Yes, which explains why, of course, as you note in the volume and as you open, the hospice industry really, first of all, started uh, in the 80s, uh, meaning med the Medicare program would pay a hospice benefit, 82. Uh, but really in the last two decades, um, the industry largely went from or over not-for-profit uh, to for-profit. In fact, in very rapid time, hospice went. Uh, in fact, of course, hospice started as a volunteer uh, program, but of course now is largely a for-profit business. Yeah, and as you say, it's because of the flood of uh, money from the uh, Medicare program. Yes, of course. There are numerous examples. Generically, you note these. Uh, of course, you note the volume barbarians at the gate. Um, you note yeah. uh, Brian Alexander had a book. In fact, I interviewed Brian Alexander on a book he wrote about a community hospital in Ohio, but his previous work, Glass House, you make note of it. You make note of uh, Colbert Kravitz's RJR Nabisco takeover, Toys R Us. But I would like to ask you specifically by way of an example, uh, because I actually have some experience, um, work experience, and this is Hanneman. University Hospital in, in Philadelphia. Right. What happened to it? And keep in, and just for the listener to know, I'll just note. So it went under in nineteen. This was a one hundred and seventy-one year old institution. But what happened to Hanneman in this regard? Well, you know, I don't remember the specifics of the Hanneman, but uh, Hanneman was a, you know, a hospital that served low-income uh, people. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, you know. Typically, of uh, this kind of uh, situation, they made a lot of their money by selling, selling the real estate uh, and weren't really interested in the um, operating. Right. And, events. Yeah, I'm sorry. And, Go ahead. Yeah, and very, very typical for the way uh, private equity works is that they um, put it in, in a great deal of debt. And again, this is what happens all the time. And it's very hard to pay off this debt. So a lot of the uh, hospitals, nursing homes, a lot of the other healthcare uh, companies uh, that they buy uh, eventually, eventually uh, can pay this debt and, and go uh, bankrupt. So you see a lot of uh, bankruptcy going on. Right. So you're, you're right. So relative to Hanneman, uh, you, as you note in the text, it was a pure real estate play of a safety net hospital. And you see this in post-acute. Uh, it was odd for it to be, uh, for this to happen to a hospital. In post-acute, in fact, particularly in skilled nursing facilities or in SNFs, you see PE acquire these really not to maintain or, pers or pursue that business, but they're buying it for the property, for the real estate. 
Uh, uh, and in, in Hanneman, it was, of course, uh, because of its location, it became a very desirable uh, real estate property by way of housing, uh, high uh, expensive uh, housing. Um, yeah, yeah. But, and what, yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Well, what happens typically in these kinds of cases um, is they sell the real estate to somebody else. They pocket the pr- private equity pockets the money, but then the operating piece, whether it's a nursing home or whether it's um, uh, a hospital, then they have to pay rent. Right, right, exactly. And, right. And, and while these companies are paying uh, off their huge debts, you know, especially if they grab a recap, you know, a dividend recap, which adds more debt. So now they're paying off this debt, they're paying off uh, rent that they never paid before because they used to own the uh, real estate, um, they're going to either go bankrupt or at least they're going to be in very uh, detrimental financial shape. Um, right. So we, financially weakened, I think, is the phrase you'll hear uh, typically. So just to be specific relative to healthcare, and you have several chapters specific. You have a, a chapter specific to long-term care, home health, hospice, and you, you do know PACE. Program for All Inclusive Care for the Elderly, which is a Medicare program. But you do a, a very thorough job relative to noting the, the extent to which PE is in the healthcare uh, sector. So I'll just list these quickly behavioral health, dialysis, dentistry, home health, and hospice, fertility clinics, physical therapy, occupational th- therapy, laboratories, imaging, hospitals, physician practices, urgent care, ambulatory surgical centers. Pharma and medical device, telemedicine, life sciences, health care credentialing, medical scribes, and the list goes on beyond that. So uh, they have a substantial investment in play uh, in healthcare. Let let me just ask you though specifically, um, what's the effect uh, in in the healthcare sector relative to uh, PE ownership? You know, I realize you know, these are sort of generic effects, but let's let's at least identify these. And starting with, of course. Um, less competition because this amounts to de facto market consolidation. Yeah, there's definitely uh, the less the less competition adds to uh, higher health care costs. Um, but what I'm mostly concerned about, and let me let me just make this clear, I see a lot of uh, focus uh, these days, such as the SEC and and uh, Congress, on the financial aspects of uh, private equity. I see less concern for the effects on quality of care. And to me, that is the biggest issue. Um, Because once a private equity firm gets a hold of uh, a dental office or gets a hold of um, uh, a dermatology office or or hospice, the first thing they're going to do is uh, try to cut operating costs. And when you cut operating costs in a healthcare, that means cutting the workforce, lowering the qualifications of healthcare workers. Uh, what's really been detrimental is substituting lesser trained or supervised um, personnel. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you do that in a retail place, so you get less service, it might not be so bad. But in healthcare, you're talking about uh, patients getting uh, inadequate services and, and maybe even uh, dying 
they use cheaper materials, I've noticed. Uh, they don't modernize the equipment because they're out of there in four or five years. Why spend the money? Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen cases where they hard sell products, like in, in you know dermatology, they, they love uh, cosmetic surgery, and they'll sell those kind of pro, uh, products. Uh, they stint on medical supplies. Um, basically, the effect on private equity has to be low quality of care. Because if you if you look at the playbook, you you have to be a magician to keep quality of care and do what they have to do to make money. Right. So yes. Yeah, so just to recap, just to be a certain here, you demonstrated access decreases, care deteriorates, choice diminishes. Uh, of course, all this largely the result of less and part less competition, worse health outcomes, and of course. Relative to operational expending, you know, lower investment in technology, lower investment in worker training, quality improvements uh, suffer uh, as well. So we want to be clear about that. And in fact, relative to private equity and building, you note the for-profit hospice sector has been in trouble consistently uh, relative to um, problematic billing uh, under the Medicare program. Uh, so it whole host of adverse and this of course gets at why the Congress currently and the Biden administration currently is is working to uh, reform skilled nursing facility staffing uh, such that uh, there's improved or greater staffing greater uh, supervision as well in um, a skilled nursing uh, care delivery so um, absolutely. Um, let me ask you about um, a couple specifics, and we'll get into some legislative acts, and if you could provide an overview. But the one um, you do, uh, and again, this is a very comprehensive effort, so that I was very appreciative. You get into this, and you make mention, you don't hear this much, the Corporate Practice of Medicine Doctrine, established in 1847. Uh, what is that, and why is that relevant here? Well, the corporate uh, practice of medicine essentially means that uh, non-medical personnel can't own uh, places like hospice or nursing homes or uh, private uh, practitioners like dermatologists. Uh, uh, That has to be owned by the doctors themselves. But the way the private equity works is that they have what they call uh, an outside corporation that they claim only does the back back services, you know, the bureaucratic services, and that it's nominally owned by doctors uh, and that they will not interfere with the practice of medicine. But of course, once they buy the place, they do interfere with the uh, practice of medicine. And that should be illegal. Um, But they go around it by, uh, you know, bureaucratic uh, design, and they've been, been able to get away with it, and I'm not quite sure why. Well, I'm going to ask you, you do interview people or, or physician practices or owners of physician practice that have sold, but let me just first note, you note as well, that only less than half of 40% of doctors own their own practices. Uh, so it's increasingly the case that doctors do not own their salaried, uh, their businesses. And you do note a AMA 2019 statement that and I'm quoting, 
uh, physicians, quote-unquote, have the right to enter into whatever contractual arrangements they deem desirable and necessary, close quote. So that was an AMA 2019 statement. But in your interviews, and I do want to ask again, in your interviews with uh, physicians who have sold their practices, what did you learn or hear? Well, for one, uh, it's very hard to get interviews with these doctors. I, yes. I did. I was able to get some, uh, a few anonymous, but, uh, you know, they have to sign uh, non-disclosure, uh, non-competition. Uh, they're, they're not allowed to talk about what goes on. So they're very nervous. Um, but the ones that were actually willing to talk about it, uh, they were sorry. Um, Many of them were sorry that they had sold their practice. They made a lot of money, um, but they lost control over their uh, practices, which meant that uh, the private equity firm was able to do whatever they wanted, even if the uh, doctor thought it was not uh, in the best interest of their patients. So a lot of them are embarrassed. Um, I talked to uh, some people that, uh, actually have better access uh, because they're physicians and they have better access to physicians who have sold their practice. And what I hear is that they're not only they're embarrassed that they were so naive when they sold their practice, mm-hmm. um, they liked the PA that they sold to but didn't realize that then it would get sold to another one they may not like. Um, some of them just leave, you know, they, they're supposed to stay, but they just can't stand watching what's happening to that patient. So they leave, but overall it's been a disaster. Okay. I, just as an aside and, and for perverse humor's sake, you mentioned, uh, Bain Capital. Of course, this was Mitt Romney, now Senator Romney's, Romney's firm. And, and I realize it's a different spelling, but, and this is rhetorical, of course, but Bain Capital you know, the other word, Bane, spelled differently, is the source of harm or ruin. I mean, that's the definition of Bane. So I always wonder for decades, did they actually name it uh, or intend to mean it as B-A-N-E and not B-A-I-N? But let's leave that aside. I just... <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> every time I see Bane Capital, that's my first thought. Like, was this just sort of a joke and they knew it and they just spelled it? Anyway, let's move on. Um, you do note, uh, you mentioned... Uh, Federal policy. Um, I mentioned, of course, we're expecting regulations on uh, SNF uh, staffing. Um, but you do note a couple of bills, uh, probably most prominently, uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, is the sponsor of, uh, you can guess what's in this bill, the Stop Wall Street Looting Act, which she introduced in 19, but she reintroduced actually just a couple months ago. And I remember this right. was last October. It has a whopping four co-sponsors in the Senate. Um, so there, this isn't lost on the Congress. Uh, but if you can give an overview of, and of course, these efforts have not been successful, but what, what has been the attempt to date? Well, as I, as I said before, um, a great deal of this attempt is, to, um, is on financial issues. Right. Um, they're, they're looking to make, the uh, private equity firms accountable. Um, you know, they, they can, uh, if, if there's really harm being done or if they go bankrupt 
or any of that happens, um, they really are not accountable for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, they their focus is also on. Uh, I mean, it's a great app. Don't get me wrong. Um, they want to close the carried interest loophole, right? Right. And, and that's where um, the fin- the people that personal income from what they get from carried interest, which is their biggest uh, pot of gold, really, um, they can uh, call that um, not not corporate uh, taxes rather than individual uh, taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, so they pay they pay far less money. And the government talks about how much uh, money they would get if they got rid of that. Um, it also uh, restricts plant closings, mass layoffs, outsourcing of jobs within 24 months of buying a company, not forever, just within 24 months. Uh, it privileges workers in bankruptcies. It gives the PE, the private equity immunity from legal liability when a company breaks the law, uh, et cetera. Um, and again, they're really looking at the financial aspects. To, uh, the SEC is also looking for greater transparency on financial issues uh, in order to protect the uh, limited partners um, and, you know, and the economy you know, in general. Um, but really, there's very little focus, again, as I started off, uh, which uh, dismays me greatly, very little focus on how the harm that is done to hospice patients, to um, kids with uh, disabilities, uh, older people in long-term care, there's, there's very little attempt right now to stop them from this kind of uh, damage to uh, consumers and people. It's mostly focused on money. Right. So uh, particularly uh, beyond hospice, of course, is uh, uh, individuals with substance use disorder, SUDS as it's termed, uh, and more generally other behavioral health disorders and treatment uh, for that, um, eating disorders, uh, et cetera, which are um, oftentimes uh, uh, diagnoses of adolescence. I will say, just as an aside, that the Congress did pass uh, last year, and it's in rulemaking at the moment, the uh, Corporate Transparency Act. Um, uh, the CTA proposed rules are out by the Department of Treasury, um, and it's all and generally it's about uh, trying to improve trans- when when you started this interview about this is all sort of unknown it's anonymous but the the this bill uh the cta is trying to um uh make ownership uh, uh by pe and venture capital more transparent so that's sort of right so they they did that that um related uh bill was passed in the legislation um you mentioned carry interest just to note there's a the carried interest fairness act that Pascrell from New Jersey, the representative, uh, introduced a year ago, plus now, um, and of course, just as an aside with 14, uh, just 14 uh, co-sponsors. Um, let me and, yes, and yesterday, let me add, uh, Biden uh, put elimination of the carried interest loophole into his tax. Uh, yes, thank you. 
part of this billionaire tax plan. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, we did talk about, so just to mention the corporate practice of medicine doctrine, um, there's also related legislation on the books, anti-kickback, so-called Stark Law after the former California right. Ways and Means Chair, Peak Stark. So there are related, um, mostly conflict of interest, as anti-kickback would suggest, uh, laws. But again, per your point, next to nothing as it relates uh, to um, healthcare quality. Uh, let me just note too, uh, and I do want to ask you about this. So obviously, PE took a hit um, over the last few years because of the economic downturn. Uh, although it looks like per your research, and your research formally goes through 2020, although I noticed you did squeeze in surprise billing legislation that finally passed. But uh, in 20, uh, you note PE uh, was a $4 trillion industry with 3,800 PE firms uh, with 8,000 companies valued at $5 trillion. So just give you an idea of size and scope. But there was a remedy, and if you could briefly summarize um, – what was surprise billing, and there was a legislative fix. Okay, so surprise billing involved uh, two major sectors. Uh, one is the um, emergency doctor sector, and that's the one that gets most of the attention. Mm-hmm. But it also involved uh, emergency uh, airplane, medical. Transportation, uh, yes, yes. I, I, for some reason, it doesn't seem to be applying to ambulances. I'm not sure. No, that's, you're correct. They left. They left ambulances out. Correct. Yeah. Um, so what that meant is that even if you're you had healthcare uh, insurance, and even if you were in the network of the hospital you were going to, most of the uh, private equity owned. Uh, emergency doctors and their uh, medical transports were outside of the network. Mm-hmm. And therefore, uh, here you would be tipped up by an airplane, you were in a crash, uh, the, they took you to the ER uh, by plane, um, and then you would get a bill, or you went to the emergency room and you were taken care of by these doctors. Then you would get a bill that was in many cases, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars uh, because they weren't in your network. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of this bill was to try to make it so that people only would pay what's in the network. And anything over that amount would be for the insurance companies and the private equity owners or whoever the owners were kind of work out uh, what they would get. So they're kind of trying to leave the consumer out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they did pass that bill. I have to say it uh, took a lot of effort and uh, was not easy. But the, but the um, controversy is still going on because now they're trying to figure out exactly um, how much is going to be paid and the... Um, Biden administration just put out a, what has made the private equity uh, companies very unhappy. Uh, they just put out uh, some rules mm-hmm. that uh, the amount would be basically uh, what the average cost was. Right, right. And there's an arbitration process and there's litigation now. 
So not only was passing the legislation difficult and took years, uh, now the implementation via regulation has been difficult, delayed, been legally challenged. So it's it's to some extent still TBD. Um, Yeah. But it's it's sort of the front line uh, battle at the moment as it relates to these out of network private equity owned uh, businesses, particularly in uh, as it relates to emergency department care, where of course the the uh, patient doesn't really because they're in an emergency situation doesn't have time to make a, a choice for care. And you get into that and you make mention of uh, healthcare is the classic uh, suffers the classic market failure problem. Although you don't get into the whole Ken Arrow world, uh, but you do make that point, so that's very helpful as well. I, I would like to—I just like to add something from what you said before. Uh, the private equity companies have not done all that bad in the pandemic. In fact, they're—they've done really, really well in the pandemic. Um, private equity deals actually have—they—they've uh, raised ever more money. Mm-hmm. Um, they've had ever more deals. Uh, both buying and selling. So they're actually uh, doing quite well um, through the pandemic. So they're not really suffering. No, right. And there, and you use the phrase dry powder. There's a lot, yeah, right. There's a lot of money on the sidelines waiting to be invested by private. So you're right. Uh, there was, there were well, a few. That, yeah. The, the private, despite all the controversy, despite everything, uh, the public pension funds are adding more and more of a percentage of their uh, billions into private equity. I just saw one uh, lace, the Los Angeles uh, system, just raised it from, uh, I think, 16% to 18%, something like that, of their funds. So um, they're, they're going strong. You know, you do make, and this is worrisome because, of course, you do note, and this gets into the weeds, that private equity owns a disproportionate percent of uh, enterprises shouldering what you term, or a term rather, B3 ratings or five levels below investment grade. So there's high high return, but there's high risk associated. And pension funds, state pension funds particularly, are, are largely gambling uh, with pensioners' monies because, of course, uh, as you know, PE you know, is high risk, high reward. Um, but that was where I was going. Private equity is back. They certainly had a downturn. There was there were numerous private equity bankruptcies over the past few years. Uh, those have largely abated. Uh, so the industry is now um, uh, coming back. There are more and more uh, deals. Um, in fact, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm assuming there was some PE money involved. But United Health Group just announced two days ago they are buying at five billion dollars a. Uh, I think it was long-term care home. It was a home health and hospice provider, I believe, uh, specifically. And I'd have to think PE had some uh, player or or participation in that. Um, well, I just I just read that um, one of the uh, U.S. dermatology partners, mm-hmm. um, which was flipped uh, three times since 2013, just defaulted uh, in January. I didn't know this. Uh, they were owned now by Avery. And they've just defaulted on their loans. Well, in some, at the end, you note uh, that U.S. healthcare is the most corporatized healthcare system in the industrialized world, of course, to reflect a PE's role or participation in uh, the sector. 
Uh, let me just ask, uh, we have time for one quick uh, uh, question. There are other sort of policy issues here. Um, uh, there is an effort for, uh, towards price transparency. You know, it would be helpful um, that the Congress write more stringent community benefit requirements. You know, the, Medicare is moving to pay for value. Per your point about PE gets away, there's little discussion. Whatever that means. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, whatever that means, you're absolutely right. But the idea is that it would it would police the PE owned enterprises because they would get rewarded only for the value they produce, uh, or there'd be you know obviously um, some reimbursement risk based on uh, quality performance. But where would where what needs to be done? Uh, or what are your recommendations after this exhaustive study relative to this, let's just focus on the quality side? Well, I, I would go much further than uh, the Wall Street stop Wall Street looting it. Um, one of the things I think when you're dealing with health care is I would prohibit any corporate practice of medicine. Um, I'd get rid of every loophole uh, that allows uh, these kind of sham ownership by private equity. Um, I also, and this is really stark, I would not allow any more investments in healthcare. I think uh, healthcare is just not suited for private equity um, because, uh, as I said before, its playbook is such that it has to loot the healthcare company and it has to hurt quality of care. I don't think it's possible to have quality of care. Uh, under the private equity uh, playbook. Um, I would eliminate all their tax advantages, but then that's getting at the money, and hopefully uh, they they know how to get around that. Mm -hmm. Um, I would also put strict limitations, at least in the healthcare sector, if not all sectors, uh, on how much debt they can put on a company. Um, You know, if the debt is uh, increasing now, Right, right. This this year, debt is going up, um, and that's because of the, uh, the you know the, the low interest rates, which aren't going to be there much longer. Right. Um, and I would have strict controls on uh, consolidation and monopoly uh, in the healthcare sector. And finally, I would not allow retail investors, people with four hundred one k's, to invest. That's a huge pool of money that they're salivating over. Right, right, right. Okay, and as you say, amongst other, again, repetitive, I realize, um, you know, in your intro, uh, PE squeezing out the most money in the briefest uh, time frame possible, that you note, uh, uh, again, in the introduction. Um, So it creates all sorts of havoc and problems on the delivery side. So with that, uh, Professor Olson, thank you very much for this overview. I wish you every success with this book. Uh, well, thank you so much. Again, well done. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.